good morning, everybody. Man, what a great looking group today. And let me just say this, if this is your very first time ever to be here at New Life, or if you're watching online right now and you're just kind of trying to figure out what God wants you to do, man, welcome. We're glad you're here and we're glad you're here in person. And, and uh, I hope that uh, your first visit turns into a second visit, your second visit turns into a third, and I say this all the time, but we want you here, and uh, I know finding a church is very hard, but I pray something we do today, we'll, we'll be like, yep, this is where God wants me to be, we want you to be here. If you got any questions, come hunt me down after church, and I'd love to meet, with you, meet you and visit with you. Hey, before we get into the Word today, there's a couple things I want to bring to your attention. Uh, next weekend, we have our annual men's retreat, and let me just tell you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm telling you right now, this has been an event here that is a highlight of the year here at New Life, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. We had to change locations because we outgrew the last place we were at. And so, fellas, listen, we want you to be a part of this, so get signed up. You can... Um, Pick up these cards. Um, there uh, are men's retreat cards, and there's a QR code on them. You can just scan it with your phone and get signed up or go to our app. I, in fact, I picked this one up in the bathroom. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. They're all over the place, but you can get these. And uh, guys, we want you to come. So all the information's on here. That's next weekend. Get signed up. The next thing I want to tell you is that... Um, here in a couple weeks, we have our trunk or treat event that we do here every year. And we are expecting about 2,000 people or more to come walking through our building with their children. And we make no bones about it. Why do we do a trunk or treat? It's because there's 2,000 people from our community that will walk through our building. That is the only reason. Because believe it or not, there are people who will come to this event on Halloween and they don't have a church family. They've been thinking about going to church. They don't even know where to start. And there's just something about how God works with people to get their attention. And they walk through our church and they go, you know what? If we ever do go to church, why don't we try this one? And people have gotten saved from an introduction to our church family just like that. And so I want to encourage you, sign up to do a booth, um, get with your life group, sign up to do a booth, donate some candy, however you want to participate. Please be praying about this, but it is coming up soon here in a couple weeks. And we just want to make this one the very best one we've ever had. And then just trust the Lord with what he does with the outcome of that effort. Now, hey, we are in a series right now called Rescued. We are studying our way through the the second book of the Bible, which is Exodus. And if you remember where we left off last week, what was Moses going through? He was going through some significant discouragement, wasn't he? Why don't you open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. That's where we're going to start today. Exodus chapter 6. Why was Moses so discouraged? He was so discouraged because he came to rescue the Israelites and they turned on him. And they accused him of all of their hardships. Pharaoh made their lives harder after Moses talked to Pharaoh, and they're like, Pharaoh, or Moses, you're making things worse for us. And this really discouraged Moses. But what do we read in chapter six? We saw this last week. God was encouraging Moses. He's like, God, I got, or Moses, I got this. Don't you worry. I am still in control. I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna do this. And seven times, God says, I will do this. And, and he's gonna deliver these. He's, he's gonna live up to what he said he's gonna do. And so Moses goes back to the Israelites and he tells them all of this stuff that God told him. And the Israelites were like, fantastic news. <laughs> Not quite. Just seeing if you're paying attention. 
No, no, no. He goes and tells them all of this, and this is what happens. Look at Exodus chapter 6, verse 9. Moses reported this to the Israelites, that God's going to do all this stuff for you. But they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. They were so beat down, so in the dumps, so this was, nothing's going right, they couldn't even hear the good news that Moses had for them. Then the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out to his country, go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Since I speak with faltering lips. This, everybody's down. Everybody's discouraged. Nobody's happy. And let me just say, if you're reading Exodus for the very first time and you do not know how the rest of this story unfolds and you get to chapter six, you might be tempted to just put your Bible down and go, that's it, it's over, everybody unhappy, this, uh, nice try, it failed. But I would encourage you, don't, don't put down your Bible yes, just yet. Keep reading, because this is the part of the Exodus where it's gonna get really good. And, and why is it gonna get really good? It's gonna get really good because God is about to put his full power and his full majesty on full display for everybody to see. He is gonna show both the Egyptians and the Israelites in the most unimaginable, I mean, just incredible way possible. I'm talking about the plagues. There was 10 of them. He's about to show them all that he is God and there is no other. So in this discouragement and everything that's happening, something is gonna ring loud and clear here in the very near future. He is God and there is no other. In fact, the next five chapters of the Bible, that's chapter seven through 11, God's display, this power, he'll be on display and that is the only response. He is God and there is no other. Do you remember back in chapter five when Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh for the very first time demanding that he let the Israelites go? And do you remember what Pharaoh said to them? It's in, it's in Exodus chapter five, verse two. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And we talked about how Pharaoh and all the Pharaohs of ancient Egypt, they saw themselves as deities themselves. And it became very clear that Pharaoh could care less about this God. He saw himself as greater than whatever God Moses and Aaron were talking about. And he said, I don't care about your God. I don't care that I should listen to him. I don't care what you're saying. I don't know him. I don't care. That was his attitude. And I'm going to tell you that Pharaoh's attitude here that we first learned about in chapter 5, it sets up an overarching message over the entire book of Exodus. And you don't have to look hard to see it. In fact, it's pretty obvious. I'm going to point it out to you anyway. But God will say this thing over and over again throughout the, the, the book of Exodus. It's this, that they may know that I am the Lord right here. You're gonna see that repeated multiple times, especially over these next five chapters, so that they will know that I am the Lord, so that they may know that I am Yahweh, or I am He. You're gonna see this language over and over and over and over again. Now, in chapter six, God communicates this concept to the Israelites. He's like, I'm, you're gonna know that I am the Lord, and there is no other. And we read this in Exodus chapter six, verse seven. What does it say? He says, I will take as my own people, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am your Lord, that I am Yahweh, 
who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. God wants these Israelites to know who he is. And he also wants the Egyptians to know the exact same thing. If you were to advance one chapter, Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, it says this. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Do you see it? The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against them. When God sends these 10 plagues onto the Egyptians and brings the Israelites out, they will know that I am the Lord. So that's one of God's goals. I want the Israelites and I want the Egyptians. I want everybody to know that I am the Lord. You know, I don't know if you had this experience, uh, for those of you that have read ahead and read the book of Exodus, like I've been challenging you to, but did you have this experience like reading it saying, well, it seems like there's a lot of effort being made here to get the Israelites out. I mean, he calls Moses, he sends them to Egypt, he has Moses perform all these miraculous signs, Pharaoh's gonna say, I'm not gonna do it, and then God sends these 10 awful plagues onto the Egyptians. Do you ever read all that and just go, God, why don't you just snap your fingers, drop the Egyptians, and let the Israelites march on out? Wouldn't that have been a whole lot easier? Well, let me just say this. If God wanted to, he certainly had the power to do it. I mean, I mean God can just wave his hand and, and the Egyptians would have been toast. But why did he go to all this? You know, these next few chapters actually clues us in that there is actually something much bigger going on. That's something you understand about the Lord. It seems like he's always got a bigger plan. God's playing the long game here. God is, is seeing things well beyond um, our ability to see, and that becomes clear in these next few chapters. We're gonna see that God's got something bigger, and there is a very specific reason for why God seems to be going through all of these steps and all of these troubles to prove what he wants to prove with all of this. See, you're gonna see that God wasn't just judging the Egyptians. He wasn't just pounding Pharaoh until he relented. No, 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 you know what the Bible tells us? That God was also bringing down judgment on all the false gods of Egypt when he was doing it. Remember, Egyptians were a very polytheistic culture. They worshiped many gods. They had gods that, that they looked to. Now, they were all made up. They were all phony baloney. They were all figments of their imagination. But it's human nature. We like to objectify things and create things and worship them. It's just something that people do. And the Egyptians were pros at it. And the Bible tells us that God is bringing judgment on all these false gods so with each and every plague, all, all of these, all 10 of them, the Lord is obliterating this concept or this false God that the Egyptians have worshiped. And I'm gonna show you this as we get into each one of these plagues. So then the, the Lord breaks down or he, he demolishes these false gods and they are proven through these 10 plagues that these made up gods were absolutely powerless to stop the one true God. And as a result, at the end of these 10 plagues, when all of these false gods that the Egyptians worship could not stop the one true God, what will people know? Everyone would know that I am the Lord. God said this about the 10th and final plague. You don't need to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 12, when God is about to send the final plague, which is the death of the firstborn in Egypt, 
says, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn with both, pe- of, of both people and animals, and I will bring, what's it say? Judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. These 10 plagues that we're gonna learn about in these next five chapters, they were not haphazard in any way. So it's not like God said, okay, the plague of frogs. Wow, that was really cool. You know, I wonder what I should do next. That, that definitely had the effect I was looking for. What calamity can I think of next that will be even worse than that? That, that is not God's attitude in this at all. What you're gonna see is that each of these plagues were targeted at the false gods of Egypt and God used these plagues to deliver his people from the Egyptians and also so that everyone will know that he is the Lord. Now I'm gonna try to identify these false gods to the best of my ability as we go through this study and and there, are, there have been historians, there have been Bible scholars, there have been archaeologists that have spent extensive amount of time and research trying to figure out exactly which gods were being targeted here. And I'm going to do my best to kind of tell you what we think they are. But uh, just know this, they had gods for everything. In fact, in Egypt, there were 80 major deities that they worshipped, okay? So there was only 10 plagues. So was God going after all 80 of their major deities? I can, I can tell you this, that of all of their deities, and, and again, when I say their, their gods, I'm talking about these things that they made up to worship because there is only one true God, which was kind of the heart of the Exodus, that they would know that all these other gods are phony. But if you take all the gods of Egypt, they all are categorized in three parts. You had gods that oversaw the Nile and they worshiped the Nile. I mean, the Nile River was really something. Then you had gods that oversaw things that happened on the land and you had gods that they worshiped that oversaw things that happened in the sky. And they had temples and all kinds of monuments built to all these different 80 plus deities. So when you think about the plagues, there were 10 of them. The first two plagues, God is defeating all the false gods of the Nile and there were multiple. And the next four plagues, God is defeating all the different false gods of land. And if you look at the final four plagues, God is defeating all the false gods of the sky. So whether we are, you know, the Lord doesn't name the specific God that he is going after with these plagues, but he is getting them all. And at the end of it all, none of these false made up gods could ever stand up and stop what the one true God was doing, and it's actually quite fascinating when you see the bigger picture of what God is doing and how he rendered all of their worship powerless to the one true God. It's, it's really, really fascinating. So when all of their gods were unable to stop what God was doing with these 10 plagues, they were left with only one conclusion. He is God and there is no other. And friends, that's something that's just really clear in the book of Exodus, God wants us to know, he wanted them to know who he was. And I would argue this, that this concept of understanding who God is, is just as important for us today as it was for the Israelites of old. In fact, I'm asked sometimes, what is the most important question or what should we know without a shadow of a doubt? If you'd ask me, what is the most important question that anybody could ask and answer today, it would be this. You ready? Who is your God? If you want to know my opinion, 
That is the most important question that any of us could ask and answer. Who is your God? You get that question right, everything else will fall into place for you. Who is your God? That is more important than any other question I can think of. And I sat there and tried to think of some questions that could be more important than that one. I'm failing at that. Who is your God? That is more important than this question. How am I going to pay my bills? Who is your God? That question is more important than this question. Who should I vote for next month? Although that's a very important question. (laughs) Who is your God? That's more important than how am I going to keep my kids from going off the rails? Or should I change jobs or keep what I got? Who should I marry? Do you realize who is your God and who should I marry? Those questions are, they're doing compare in importance. Who is your God is a more important question. Because who is your God will have a huge impact on who you marry. Should I go to college? Where should I go to college? That question is not nearly as important as who is your God? It is the most important question you'll ever ask and answer. And I can tell you here today, God wants you to ask it. And God wants everyone to answer it. Here's what I love about the Bible. The Bible does not leave us alone in trying to figure this out all by ourselves. The Bible actually gives us the answer many times over to the question of who is your God? Much later in the Exodus, long beyond what we will study in our scope of Exodus, towards the end of Moses' life, he will gather all the Israelites together before they go into the promised land, and he is going to try to tell them and remind them, don't you ever forget who your God is. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 34 and following says this, has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation? In other words, all these false gods, have they ever tried to do anything that our God has done? Have any of them ever tried to make a nation all unto themselves? By testing, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. You were shown these things, what's the next part say? So that you might know that the Lord is God, beside him there is no other. Why did he go through all of this? Well, Moses said. So the question is, who is your God? Well, know this, okay, friends, who, to answer your question, that beside him, there is no other. Who is our God? He is the one true God. That's who he is. There is no other beside him. Later, in the, later on in the story of the Exodus, long after Moses is gone, a leader named Joshua takes over for Moses and he leads the Israelites And he wants to remind the Israelites about the very same thing. And in Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, this is what he says to all the people of Israel. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in in Egypt and serve the Lord. So who is your God? He is the one true God. And what else? He is to be feared. In other words, he is to be revered and he is to be served. And I would say it like this. He is to be followed with all of our heart. Who is your God? He is the one true God and we are to follow him and be devoted to him and serve him and worship him and do what he says. That's our God. And we wonder, 
Does this kind of teaching or understanding of who God is, does that follow into the New Testament? Is there anything there that can help us understand this? From the very mouth of Jesus, we understand who our God is. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples and he prayed this powerful prayer. It's all over John chapter 17. But in John 17, three, Jesus prayed this. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So who is your God? Well, he stands alone. There is no other. He is the one true God. He is to be followed. And and our lives of obedience follow him with all of our heart and soul. And what else? He sent salvation to the world through Jesus. And it is through Jesus and only through Jesus can you come back together in harmony with God. He saves you through Jesus. Pharaoh told Moses, I don't know this God. I don't have a clue who he is, and I don't care to. I want to ask you a question today. Do you know who God is right now? Do you know who he is? If you're watching online right now and you don't even know what you think about any of this stuff, I'm asking you, do you know who God is? Do you know him today as the one true God who saves us through his son, Jesus Christ? who should be loved and followed with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Do you know who your God is? Pharaoh didn't know, but he's about to find out. So Moses goes back to Pharaoh after God tells him to. If you look at Exodus chapter seven, verse two, here's what happens next. You are to say everything I command you and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Now this is God's pattern here of telling Moses and Aaron what's going to happen before it happens. Boy, wouldn't that be nice? God, a little heads up here would be good. (laughs) Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions. In other words, then the plagues will come. You're gonna tell Pharaoh what I want. He's not gonna listen. And then I'm gonna level him and I will bring out the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old, Aaron 83, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now, as I mentioned to you last week, I'm going to mention the same thing this week, that in an upcoming sermon, we will deal with this concept of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, okay? We're not going to deal with it today, but since this phrase or some sort of this phrase is used 20 times, we're gonna come across it many more times and we will have the opportunity. Just wanted you to know, it's, it's something you're wondering about. We will tackle it together. And, uh, but, but, but for now, I want you just to imagine this scene. Here you have two guys in their 80s, brothers, Moses and Aaron, claiming to speak for God, claiming to represent all of the Israelites and they make demands of Pharaoh. 
that if he agrees to do it, will affect his entire country. It will affect his entire country because he will just release the entire slave population that's building everything, the Israelites. Now you just think about that from that perspective. We know for a fact Pharaoh was never gonna go along with this. He wouldn't do it. I mean, he said, you gotta let all these people go and, and change the entire economy of your country and lose all credibility with your people. There's no way Pharaoh was gonna go along with their demands. If you look at verse eight, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle. So what God is saying basically is, you're gonna stand before Pharaoh and he's gonna wanna know some credentials. He's not gonna take you at your word. You're gonna show up and say, you speak for me and you speak for the Israelites. He won't believe you. He's gonna want some kind of proof. And God is saying the proof he will demand that what you're saying is true will be a miracle. And here's what you should do. Verse eight, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh asks you to perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Now you know this, this isn't the first time this has happened. Remember when God called Moses from the burning bush and, and this thing happened with Moses' staff? And the same thing happened when Moses went to the Israelite leaders and he threw his staff down. This miracle that God gave Moses the ability to do was for the purpose of proving that he actually speaks for God. If you just show up and say, I speak for God, even today if somebody said that, we'd be like, <laughs> yeah, right. But they throw a staff down, it becomes a snake. They might listen. The same reason Jesus performed miracles too, so that they would listen and so they would know that he comes with the authority of God. And so now in front of Pharaoh, they do the same thing, throw the staff down and it becomes a snake. Now I'm gonna tell you something about me. If I was leading the Egyptians back then, if I was Pharaoh Joe in the Exodus story, knowing my personality and who I am, if Moses and Aaron came and presented themselves to me and they threw their staff down and it became a snake right in front of me, knowing my personality, I'm a seeing is believing kind of guy, I'd have been like, when do you guys wanna go? Five o'clock, six, can we make you some sandwiches? You want some soup for the journey? That's me. I, 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 am, um, I am the door-to-door -door salesman's dream. <laughs> Somebody comes and knocks on my door and they said, I've got a product that will change your life. Can I show you? I'm like, yeah, come on in. If that's gonna change, yeah, you come on in. More than once, my wife has come home and I've been like, hey, honey, this is so-and-so uh, and, -so, and you gotta see what he's got. Hey, do that again. Put that stain back in the carpet and clean that up again. You gotta see this. My wife and I were in Sam's Club one day and it was a Saturday and it was really busy and crazy and I came down this aisle. We got separated and I came down this aisle and some guy was doing a demonstration of knives. Okay, knives. Oh, you, you've seen it too. And, um, and, um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm captivated. And so my wife calls me, where are you? Husbands, have you ever gotten that call? They're like, where are you? I'm like, I am in aisle nine. You gotta get over here. You should see this knife. It never goes dull. It cuts through the head of a hammer and then it will cut bread like nothing. You gotta get over here. It's the best knife I've ever bought. I'm just telling you, it's the... I'm a seeing is believing. So if, if I was Pharaoh Joe, 
And this snake became a staff, knowing me, I'd be like, get on down the road. I love demonstrations. Maybe I'm just easily wowed. But Pharaoh is not easily wowed. In fact, Pharaoh's like, that's a nice trick. I'll do you one better. Look at verse 11. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and Egyptian magicians also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw his staff, threw down his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord said. Man, how'd they do that? You read that part on your own and go, whew, I thought only Moses could do that. There's a lot of theories out there as to how these magicians did this. Was it magic? Like, I mean, like David Copperfield magic. Like sleight of hand, smoke and mirrors. What you think you're seeing is not what you're seeing. Was it that? Or did they tap into something much darker? Satanic driven. I'm comfortable with either one. I think it could have been either one. I don't think we can say. But if it was driven along by Satan or it was just sleight of hand, either way, I think both are possible and plausible. But regardless, what I take away from that is not so much that they, by some power, could also do that, but the fact is they could not stop Aaron's snake from eating all of theirs. And you think that right there is kind of a visual demonstration that no matter what power they think they have or by what name they think they do things, their inability to stop God. So Aaron's snake ate up all of theirs, but even with that, even with that demonstration, before the plagues ever started, Pharaoh was unmoved. He refused to acknowledge the one true God. And let me just tell you, friends, I have often wondered why some people just won't budge when it comes to the Lord. Have you wondered that? Do you have a friend or a family member who has every reason in the world to follow Jesus? but they won't. I mean, the evidence is all around him. God has shown himself faithful to that person over and over and over again, but yet they refuse to follow the Lord. They just won't budge. Do you know anybody like that? Anybody that you just love with all of your heart, who you want more than anything to be in heaven with you for all eternity, but as of this moment, they just won't budge. Now I said that, that God had told Moses and Aaron ahead of time that Pharaoh would not budge, and they knew that. But there's still there's a part of me that wonders if Moses and Aaron didn't leave his presence just shaking their heads going, how could he not be moved when he saw that? How can this guy's heart be so hard when they saw all these snakes appear out of s- sticks and then our snake ate the rest of them. How can this guy refuse to acknowledge who the Lord is, that he's the one true God? And we all know that person who no matter what you show them, they just won't budge. Now I'm gonna ask you a question and I don't want you to raise your hand on this, but I wonder how many of you in this room today or how many are watching online right now had to learn that he is God and there is no other the hard way. Anybody here had to learn about, learn the truth that he is God and there is no other, the hard way? 
And by the hard way, I'm talking about years of ignoring God's call on your life, years of saying, God, you don't mean anything to me, even though deep down you know he should. And then God had to, in some way, get your attention the hard way. Maybe you've spent years living, um, decades maybe, living a lifestyle or living in such a way that you know deep down in your heart dishonors the Lord, but you have never cared about it until your world came crashing down on you. And then in that moment, you turned your eyes to God in humility. Why is it that some people, with all the evidence we have around us, still choose to learn that he is God and there is no other, the hard way. That's Pharaoh's way. Pharaoh just chose the hard way to do this. And I wish I could stand up here before you today and tell you that Pharaoh's life has a happy ending. If you haven't read that far ahead yet, I'm sorry, I'm about to blow it for you. Pharaoh never does come to the Lord. Now Pharaoh will eventually relent his control but he will never relent his heart. And man, I, I feel like that's a lot of people these days. I'm not gonna give you my heart. I've seen all the evidence, I've got all the reason in the world to God, but I'm not gonna budge. My, my heart is hard towards you. And I, and I think about this part of the whole Exodus story and this whole concept of Pharaoh's hard heart, and we're gonna get into that more and more. But at, on this level, what I think, what is Pharaoh's actions? What should that serve for us today? It should serve as a warning. And what is that warning? That warning is this, do not harden your heart to God. If you get anything from Pharaoh out of this whole Exodus encounter, it should be this, do not harden your heart to God. He saw awesome signs and incredible wonders even before the plagues and he still refused to listen. There are some people in this world today that would say things like this, you know what, if I could see miracles like we see in the Bible, then I too would believe. You ever talk to somebody who said that? I want to see something supernatural. I want to see God's mighty hand work in an incredible way. And if that could happen, then I would believe. But I'm telling you, all the miracles in the world will not overcome a stubborn, hard heart. It's not an issue with evidence because we have it. It's the issue of a stubborn, hard heart. Jesus tells this remarkable parable in Luke chapter 16. A parable is an illustration, it's a story that Jesus would tell. About a third of his preaching was in the form of parables. And Jesus would tell a story that would illustrate a spiritual reality or a spiritual truth. So he spoke often in stories. And, and in Luke chapter 16, he tells this story about these two men who died. One was a, a rich guy who had all the blessings that you could imagine in life. And the other one was a poor man. He was a beggar. And that guy's name was Lazarus. And when they both died, Jesus says that they ended up in completely opposite places. So in doing so, he's saying the grave is not the end. No, no, no. We were meant to live forever. And these two guys went to completely opposite places after they died. Upon dying, the rich man... He went to a, a, a place that was very hell-like. And the poor man, Lazarus, he went to a place that was very heaven-like. 
And the, the, the man that, was, that was, had all the blessings already in this life, the place he went to, the Bible describes as a place of, of torment. In this visual of the afterlife that Jesus is describing, there was no relief for the man who was in torment. And Jesus, in this story, he says, this man that's in torment, he looked up and he could see Abraham way off in the distance. And, 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 he, and he yelled at the man just to give him some kind of relief. Abraham, please help me. Just even if, even if you just give me one little drop of water on my tongue, just to, to soothe just a little bit. I'm in agony, he says, in this fire. So sometimes some of the language you wonder, where do this concept of hell and torment and fire, it's in parables like this, it's in other places. Now let me just say this kind of as a side note. This is a story that Jesus said, this, this is a parable. But if the real hell is anything like Jesus is, is describing here, and we know this and we can conceptualize it and understand it on this side of the grave while we still have breath in our lungs? If we know this already, then why in the world would anybody play around with their lives today and still continue to have a stubborn, hard heart to God? It, it blows my mind. I don't know why people would still choose to do that. But Abraham, he sees the man in agony and he informs him there is no relief coming. Your eternal destiny is set. There is no change in it. But the man begged him, if that's the case, then can you send Lazarus back to the land of the living from where he's at? And can you send him specifically to warn all of my brothers so they can make the changes possible so they don't end up in this place where I am? And Abraham says this to them in, 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 in chapter 16, verse 29. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. In other words, what Abraham's saying is, they already have the evidence. They already have the testimony at their fingerprints. They have the testimony of Moses. They've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They've got the testimony of Moses. They've got the testimony of the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament. And I would say, we too today have the testimony of the whole Bible. And Abraham is simply just saying to him, they already have what they need. They're not listening. What good is it going to be to send Lazarus? They already have what they need. And then verse 30, it says, No, Father Abraham, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He's like, somebody from this afterworld needs to go back to the living. And, and if they will get that testimony, then they'll repent. And this says in verse 29, he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they don't read Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, they don't read the rest of the Bible and they haven't figured out that there is one true God and he is alone to be served and worshiped, if they can't figure that out, if they won't listen, he says, then they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. If the testimony we have, the testimony that's right there in the rows in front of you, if that's not enough, then even somebody coming back to life won't be enough. Can I tell you something? In fact, somebody did come back to life. Somebody did indeed come back from the dead. And many people still choose not to believe him either. 
There are people in this world that will not believe Jesus' testimony. Jesus did give us the final sign though. And you want evidence? I'll tell you about it. It's called the empty tomb. And it should be all the evidence that anybody would ever need to believe. That tomb is empty, my friends. And I would also say there are still, there's lots of evidence out there. Enough evidence for anybody on this planet to believe that he is the Lord and there is no other. But what these next five chapters of Exodus does is it puts that truth, that reality, that he is the Lord and there is no other on full display. We have the testimony of Moses and that's what we're studying together. And what we need to walk away from this with is he is the Lord and there is no other. So I come back to this question. Who is your God? It is, my friends, the most important question that you could ever ask and answer. And the Bible gives us the answer. The question is, do you receive it or do you reject it? And if you receive it, then you know exactly what the Lord is saving you from. Lord, I just thank you for the testimony of the Bible. I thank you, Lord, for how it teaches us and at times how it warns us. And I pray, Lord, you give us all a listening ear today. But Lord, I just thank you so much that you truly are God. You are the one true God and there is no other like you. And Lord, that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross. And when he died, they placed him in a tomb and three days later, he came up out of that tomb and that tomb is still empty today. So Lord, as we ask the question, who is your God? We know you're the one true God who sent his son Jesus and what you want from us is full obedience, faith, to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. That's who you are. So Lord, I pray you help all of us see it clearly. Now Lord, there may not be one person in the New Life family that is unclear as to who their God is. But Lord, if there's anybody here today or anybody watching online who maybe today for the very first time, Lord, had their eyes open. I've had a stubborn heart, but I wanna follow the one true God, Lord. We give you praise for that eye-opening moment. And I pray, Lord, that that eye-opening moment would cause faith and repentance and to choose you as Lord and to follow through and unite with you in baptism and to live with you and for you forever. Knowing, Lord, that we are indeed saved. So Lord, we give you all praise and glory and honor because you are the one true God. So Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.